You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us by your word, Lord, that we would be troubled by the things that trouble you, but Lord, that we would know you as the God whose property is always to have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to skip over um, because it really is just the same point, the same points that I made last week. Uh, the middle chunk of Jude's letter is an exposition of the Old Testament, and really he's just trying to make the point of the people that you're dealing with today, those who have crept into the life of the church uh, in the same way that the serpent and Satan crept into the Garden of Eden. This is nothing new, right? This isn't a new uh, phenomenon. Um, we shouldn't uh, be surprised that the, the wolves want to get in uh, amongst the sheep. And I saw a Far Side cartoon. Remember the Far Side? What a great uh, series that was. And, and good for Gary Larson to say, I'm quitting while I'm on top, right? I, you know, I'm, I'm stepping back. And there was a great cartoon that I think uh, Jude would have related to. And it has these wolves and sheep's clothing amongst all these other sheep. And they're all starting to take their, head, uh, their masks off. And one wolf says, is anyone around here a sheep? Um, uh, because, in fact, they're all wolves dressed up as sheep. And I do think that, that Jude feels that. And there's a real danger of, uh, of the sheep uh, being pulled over, which is why he uses such strong language and using some Old Testament examples of that. Uh, I, I think um, there is one little thing that I'm not going to bring up, but I would want you to go back and say, well, what, um, what was the way of Cain? What was uh, Balaam's error? Uh, what was Korah's rebellion? Uh, what about Enoch and, and those things? Uh, there is one little thing that actually is not in the Old Testament that he uses as an example, and I'm not going to tell you what that is because you'll be uh, able to find it if you uh, search for one of his illustrations or examples in uh, the Old Testament. It, it won't be there. And uh, a, a free cup of coffee uh, to whoever uh, can tell me next week when we finish up with the doxology, and that will be our last class, uh, what that illustration is that he uses that is not in the Bible. Okay, this morning we're going to look at verses 16 uh, through 23. So let me read that for us. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boaster, loud boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so I do want to recap a little bit of what I said last week, which could be done uh, looking at verse uh, 10. Uh, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. 
and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So these teachers are struggling with these false teachers. If they don't understand it or they don't like it, they're simply discarding it. And what are they relying on for instruction? What is the, the main factor that informs their teaching? They're ungodly passages, what they understand instinctively. Right, so that actually ought to be one of the big red flags. If somebody says, well, I just don't feel fill in the blank, or I have to believe fill in the blank, or I could never follow a God who fill in the blank, that should be a little indicator because what are they really saying? They're making those statements based on their own instincts. But of course, the Bible teaches a God that, praise God, is, is not like us. Right? Uh, he, he's, he's not at all like us. And when you look at something like the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, in our hearts, we could not come up with that. Right? That's not what we would do. Uh, our hearts would say, Christ came into the world to save people who agree with me. Christ came into the world to save people who at least try hard. Christ came into the world uh, to help me be the best version of myself that I can be. Christ came into the world to make my life a little bit better. Uh, these are all things that, I mean, everything that I've said, don't you kind of hope that that's true? You know, you kind of like, man, that sounds pretty good, right? That, that's what we would come up with instinctively. And so, of course, these teachers are saying you ought to give in and, and uh, to your own desires and uh, exhibited through sexual immorality in the church uh, because God wants you to be happy. You ever heard that? God wants you to be happy. And I can remember uh, talking with a family member who I dearly love who was uh, engaged in sexual immorality in their life. And uh, their ultimate argument against me was, isn't my happiness important to you? Now, at one level, yes, of course. Don't we want one another to be happy? Uh, but do you see how deluded they were into thinking, if I do this, then I will be happy? When, of course, Judah's saying, you're being sold a bill of goods. This is, this is, uh, Christ, this is Christian uh, in Pilgrim's Progress when he meets Mr. Worldly Wise Man and he says, oh, you can get the burden off your back if you just go to this little place called the Hill of Legality. And you go see them and, uh, and they will go ahead and they will relieve you of your burden. And so he readily goes off to the Hill of Legality and does anyone remember what happens? Thunder and lightning, and all of a sudden, it's as if the hill itself is falling down upon him, and he realizes this isn't going to work. <laughs> this isn't going to work. And he runs back to the straight path. Why did I get off the path? Well, he got off the path because he was following his own instincts. He was thinking, this is, I want so bad. In some ways, the desire of Christian to be relieved of his burden is right. Where he gets led astray is the remedy for the alleviation of his burden, uh, which uh, can only come uh, through Jesus Christ. And does anyone remember uh, what it was that ultimately relieved Christian of his burden in Pilgrim's Progress? Speak up. Right, he sees the cross and the burden falls off and rolls into an empty tomb. 
changed man. Changed man. And that's the gospel that's been given to us uh, by, by God's word. And so I think that today, uh, just like in Jude's day, we're dealing with a lot of false teachers who are, have an anthropomorphized view of God. That is that the God that they teach looks a whole lot like them rather than uh, God speaking for himself and us responding to how he reveals himself in scripture. Now, before we start to think, well, that, you know, this still sounds a little bit harsh, Andrew. Let's stop and ask, how does God reveal himself in scripture? What's the, oh, if we want to know what God is like, who do we look like? Who do we look to? We look to Jesus. Now, I wonder if you'll open your Bible. Uh, well, if you have it already, but flip over to John chapter 6. I'm sorry, uh, we're not going to go to John chapter 6. Matthew chapter 11. Right. This is, this is Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start reading at the 25th verse. At that time, Jesus declared, and he's praying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Right? This is counterintuitive. Just because you're smart doesn't mean you can figure this out. It has to be revealed to you. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Uh, while I was gone from my prayer retreat this past week, I read uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, which is a great book, and I'm going to recommend it for, for Lent. And one of the things that Ortland says that I'd never really thought about is that this is really the one place in Scripture where God opens up his heart and says, I want you to see who I am. Right? At, remember that moment in the, in the Old Testament when Moses says, I, I want to see you? Uh, and he has to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. And, and what part of God can Moses see? Yeah, his backside. But here, God actually turns full in front of us and opens up his heart. And how does God reveal himself? What does he say he is? I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's at the heart of who God is. Gentle and lowly in heart. So let's talk about mercy then, because that seems to be a prevailing theme in Jude's letter. And really, the, I, what I think Jude is trying to say is that one of the reasons why we've kind of gone off the rails is that we don't understand God's mercy. We don't understand who God is in being gentle and lowly in heart. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, and, and certainly in the New Testament, but it seems that the phrase is more often in, in the Old Testament, uh, when God is made angry, why does he get angry? What gets him to angry? 
idolatry, lack of faith. Are there any number of things that uh, yeah, hard heartedness? There are all these things. Uh, but do you ever notice that it takes a while for God to get to that point? And he uses a little phrase, my people have provoked me to anger. So for God to get angry, what needs to happen? He has to be provoked, which means that God's default position, his heart, is not angry. Have you ever, re ever read in the Bible that God has to be provoked to mercy? Why? Because that's who he is. And what provokes God to anger is this misunderstanding of mercy. This idea that, well, my sin's not that bad, or if it is bad, I can deal with it on myself. And what provokes God to anger is because he knows that sin outside of Jesus Christ's reconciling work, what happens to that? Destruction, death. And so actually... God wants us to take even the worst of ourselves, especially the worst of ourselves, as I said this morning in the sermon, and to come unto him, to enter into his mercy. And there's a misunderstanding of who God is and what it really means for God to be merciful by taking sin and saying it's really not sin or taking sin and saying it's not so bad and in a way saying that you have nothing to be forgiven for, which actually leads you, people would think, well, that gives me freedom, but actually that gives you the freedom to be destroyed. So it's no wonder that Jude is yelling, come into Jesus, understand his mercy. And all of the sins that he's talking about here are birthed out of a misunderstanding of God's mercy. Some of them, uh, he goes uh, earlier on, uh, I like the, the turn of phrase. These are hidden reefs uh, that he talks about. But there are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. There are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, grumbling in 1 Corinthians and other places, grumbling is laid alongside idolatry and sexual immorality. They're put on par. Those three things are put on par with one another which none of us, I wouldn't think, right? I would think grumbling is bad, but it's not quite as bad as sexual immorality or certainly idolatry. So I might grumble. And the reason why I think that is because I'm more prone to grumble than I am to make a little idol and put it up in my house or, uh, or even sexual immorality. Um, but uh, it, it, I'm certainly subject to those things. Uh, but I think you understand what I mean, that I'm, grumbling is the safe one for me. And why is grumbling so insidious? What's the problem with grumbling? Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about grumbling. And he's hearkening back to Psalm 95. Does anyone know what Psalm 95 says? We sing it sometimes. Which harkens back to a moment that happened in the Exodus in the wilderness. Yes, they harden their hearts. Grumbling is an exhibition of a misunderstanding of God's mercy. What were the Israelites grumbling about? The food, the, food, the water, 
the quail, that was the big day of rebellion when God, he'd had enough. He'd had enough. And then they get to the promised land. And what do a lot of them say? 40 years. Hey, maybe we should go back. You know, 40 years and you finally make it. And they say, we should go back because what are they actually doing? They're begrudging the mercy of God. They're not actually able to see how God, how God is, has been so merciful to them uh, in bringing them out of Egypt and delivering them from slavery and rescuing them from Pharaoh's armies and providing uh, water and, uh, and, and manna from heaven and quail and taking care of them and, and leading them through and finally getting them to the promised land. You grumble because you don't understand God's mercy. And that puts you in a really, really bad place, biblically, and especially here in Jude. And so, I mean, that's true of all of us. I mean, when I grumble, that's exactly, because all the complaints go to the top. That's exactly what I'm doing. Because what I'm saying is, I think I deserve better. I have a better idea of how this should go than God. My life ought to be headed in a different direction. Things should be working out for me. Can't I get a break? Well, what I've not been able to see is that God has given me infinite breaks, right? His infinite mercy is, is not to be fathomed. And how often we take it for granted, which leads to grumbling and indeed leads to sexual immorality, leads to idolatry. Right? If you don't think that God's mercy is enough or that he's got it wrong, you're going to pursue idolatry. You're going to try to find something else to give you validation in life. You're, again, as I said last week, uh, sexual immorality is just the product of deeper, more insidious sins. Uh, there are a whole lot of stops on the train track before you get to sexual immorality. And this is what Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts. You've got to catch your heart in the process of being hardened, which more often than not means somebody has to say to you, like Jude, you're hardening your heart. And most of us would say, no, I'm not. I'm just a little upset by this. I just think this is a little bit unfair. Isn't my happiness important to you? Before our hearts become completely calcified uh, to the point that there's that scary little passage in Hebrews uh, when the author is talking about Esau and said that God gave him no room to repent. That you, you, be, you become a spiritual form of Lot's wife who's been turned into a pillar of salt. And why was Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt? She looked back. And what is that actually an indicator of? Lack, I don't trust God's mercy. He's not merciful enough. I'm just going to, I'd like to weigh my options. Can you give me a minute? Uh, and it's very easy for us to step back and say, man, these people are foolish. Can't they see? If we can see, it's only because God has intervened in our lives and kept ours, our eyes open. It's only a product of God's mercy and grace to us that we're able to see these things. Now, the other things, malcontents, following their own, so we already know about that. Uh, loudmouth boasters, uh, man, 
Loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage, they ought to do a seminary class on that uh, because I was not prepared for that when I got ordained. Uh, but the number of times that I've had to deal with loudmouth boasters who show favoritism to gain advantage um, is remarkable. And even though someone might say, hey, you know, they're allowed, this is a per- point of personal privilege. You know, they're just loudmouth boasters and they're showing favoritism to gain advantage. That's not, that doesn't help, does it? Because it still hurts. Right? It still, it still hurts. And the hard thing is to make sure that your heart is not becoming hard to them. I have a very bad habit of calling people idiots. And, uh, and my girls, uh, I, I think I told you earlier on, uh, the girls, and I, I know that they heard this somewhere else because I don't think they came up to it. But anytime I'm in the car and I say, idiot, or look at that idiot, uh, a little voice will come from the back seat that says, another kind word from your pastor. Uh, and, uh, and it is a real sanctifying effect on me. And uh, it really is great. And, uh, so where do you think they heard it? I think that they heard it because I remember hearing something um, Alistair Begg said, and I must have been listening to an Alistair Begg sermon, and it's a, don't ever underestimate what your children pick up, and hopefully that's the kind of stuff they pick up, not... Um, and what does Jesus say? Don't call anyone a fool. Call no man a fool. Meaning, you're just as much an idiot as they are. The difference is you're a redeemed idiot. And if not for me, you'd be an unredeemed idiot. But you're still blind without me. And so making sure that we don't harden our hearts to those who are caught in error. And um, I've already talked a lot about uh, the, the other stuff in 17 through 23. But uh, I want to go down uh, to verse 21. Um, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Is that our disposition toward those who are walking in error? Now, he's not talking here about the false teachers. What would he say to them? out. I'm driving the wolves out. Get out. But he's talking about the sheep that are being led astray. There's a great story about Susanna Wesley, uh, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, and she had something like 14 or 15 children. And uh, there was a house fire. Uh, John and Charles's father, Samuel, was the rector of a church in Epworth, England, and uh, around Norfolk. And there was a great fire in the rectory, and uh, John was trapped, and uh, someone climbed up a ladder and pulled John out just as the roof was collapsing. And for the rest of her life, Susanna called John the brand that was snatched from the fire. And she knew in that moment that God had a special plan for her son's life. And of course, God did. And I wonder if you know, we may not have been in a, in a house fire. Uh, some of you may have been. Um, but do we understand that that's exactly who we are when we're rescued in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we've been snatched out of the fire, that the destruction wasn't miles and miles away. It was right at hand. And God is saying here in the letter to Jude that we have brothers and sisters who are in a burning house and they need to be snatched out. And many of them, when you climb up the ladder and say, the house is on fire, you need to go. With the weather outside, them, it's actually kind of warm. It's the nicest it's been in the house all winter. This is great. 
No, you, you notice that it doesn't say, hey, talk them out of it. What is the word used here? Snatch them. But that's an aggressive word, isn't it? Snatch them out of the fire. Snatch them before it's too late, before they get consumed. Are we doing that? Are we actually in love leading people into the truth, leading people into the light away from darkness? Or are we, like I am sometimes, well, God will work that out. Or give it time. Or even here's a book, maybe here's a sermon. There's nothing wrong with those types of things. But actually, are we being intentional in saying, hey, fellow Israelite in the Exodus, I miss the cucumbers and the meat pots as much as anybody. But I'd rather be in, in the wilderness with God than to be in Egypt without him. And I know it's hard. God knows it's hard. But if we're believers, it means that this world is not our home and that our lives are just one big wandering in the wilderness. Except we have a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And there are times in our lives, just like in the Exodus, and I loved it when they got to the Red Sea, what happened to the pillar? It went behind them. That God in his mercy is actually willing to stand between us and those who would do us harm, especially those who would do us harm spiritually and those who would attempt to thwart the purposes of God. Because God's property is to have mercy which means God's desire is to be snatched out of the fire. And sometimes that means being direct. Dear brother, dear sister, I think you might be going off the rails a little bit. Of course your happiness uh, means everything to me. But I'm haunted by the words of Charles Simeon, who was for years the rector of Holy Trinity in Cambridge, England. And uh, Charles Simeon said one time, uh, well, if you don't know anything about Charles Simeon, there's a great biography by a man named Hopkins that really captures the man, Charles Simeon, and his ministry. Charles Simeon was hated. They hated him uh, to the point that for the first couple years of his ministry, they locked the doors of the church so that he couldn't get in. Uh, they would lock the pews. Uh, uh, the parishioners never came, but the students from Cambridge University came. And... Uh, it was after seven years, I think, of being rector at Holy Trinity, Cambridge, where Simeon was walking down the street and someone doffed their cap to him. And he ran back to his rooms at King's College and wept because it was the first time in seven years that anyone had acknowledged him publicly and said hello in Cambridge. So when I think I've got it bad, there's Charles Simeon. Well, somebody was asking Charles Simeon about how to handle error and, and, and wanting to maintain relationships. And Simeon said, I would rather them, I would rather them look upon me with distaste and resentment in this world in order that we might be joined together in the next than for them to smile fondly on me in this world to be eternally separated in the next. Did you get that? Say it again. Don. <laughs> I would rather you frown upon me and resent me in this world in order that we might be joined together in the next than for you to smile fondly upon me in this world that we might be eternally separated in the next. And... It, 
life is fleeting. Uh, it was very hard for me not to say anything. Um, but our dear sister, Ann Hull, uh, who I talked to just last week and was on the mend. Um, and now she's in the arms of Jesus. She's in the arms of Jesus. And somebody told Ann the truth of God's word and the truth of who Jesus Christ was. And, and she took hold of him. And the real joy about that is that I was able to smile fondly upon Anne in this world and I'll get to do it in the next. And that's, the, that's the ideal. That's what, what God, God wants for us. And, and Anne knows that she was a brand that was plucked from the fire. And she's been delivered from this world. And of all people, Anne and Leland have been such a tremendous encouragement to me as I've sought to pluck people from the fire. Because I get a lot of people who are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage, saying, you're over the top. Give it a rest. Even blaming me for destroying certain things or saying, you're, you're causing divisions. Uh, uh, Jude says something about that. No, they're the ones that cause divisions. But Anne and Leland had their heads on straight because Jesus put their heads on straight. And so I, I give great thanks for Anne um, who lived out this letter um, and just a, a beautiful woman uh, because uh, she was a godly woman. And I give uh, thanks to God uh, for her. And so we snatch, snatch them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Uh, meaning, you know, you're, you're actually, uh, the people that we're dealing with here are not uh, tame, domesticated individuals, but actually have some teeth, and you might get hurt. Rescuing someone from the fire means that you might actually get burned. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. But your distaste for sin and seeing people led astray is so great that you even want to see the clothes thrown in the fire. Get that off of you. Get rid of it. It's, it's, it's tainted. You, you've, got to, you've got to just get rid of it altogether. And so the answer that Jude is putting forward is a real call to action that is real relational. It's, it's, you have to be in relationship with people uh, to be able to do that. It's saying to the false teachers, be gone with you. I rebuke you. Go away. You have no place here. You know, it's, it's like Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is reading the book and his family and the townspeople come up to try to dissuade him from going through the wicked gate in the way that leads to eternal life. And to remember what he does when they're all yelling at him to turn around and go back to the city of destruction? He puts his fingers in his ears and he starts yelling life, life, eternal life as he runs toward the wicked gate. Now the world looks at that and says, look at that fool. He's lost his mind. What an idiot. But if you're in Jesus Christ, you know exactly how Christian feels. Life, life, eternal life. I'm going to put my fingers in my ears. I'm going to run away from you and I'm going to run to Jesus. And for those sheep that you're trying to pluck off and, and, and to lead off, I'm going after them. I'm going, and this is not the responsibility of just pastors. This is the responsibility of all Christians. Because who is Jude writing to? To those who are called, 
beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's y'all. Right? That, that's, that's you. Now, how do we do that? Well, I've already given you some practical suggestions, uh, or at least creating a framework for them. Uh, but I do think that it's worth revisiting one more time this idea of the most holy faith. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. How do you do this? How do you approach the one being led astray? How do you stand up to false teaching? What does Jude tell you to do? Build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Right? Those are our weapons as Christians. Prayer and the word of God. Because the most holy faith that Jude is talking about here is not subjective faith. It's not the faith that we often talk about of God give me faith. He's talking about the objective faith as articulated by God's word. Now, Second Peter, as I've said before, is a twin, um, a twin letter to, um, to Jude. And so I'm going to turn over to Second Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It's the very end of his letter. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 18 again, but grow in what? The grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so if you're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's not by osmosis. How do we grow in the knowledge of anything? Like, let's say that you wanted to do a, a research project on wood paneling. I'm just looking at this room. Or portraiture. What would you do? You'd read a lot about portraiture or wood pan, right? You would do the research and, and then you'd try your hand at it and try to, try to figure it out. So if you're going to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, what must you do? You've got to crack the Bible, right? You've got you to open the Bible and, and begin to read. And it doesn't mean that you're going to understand everything. God knows I don't understand everything. Uh, but we do believe that the Holy Spirit is going to lead us into all truth, right? And so if you're trying to pluck people out of the fire... Uh, if you're showing them mercy yet with fear, you have to be growing in the grace and knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. And growing in the grace is what we've been talking about all along. Growing in the understanding of God's mercy, that he's keeping you. Right? The whole understanding of salvation is not that you, know, you, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel, isn't it? So when someone asks you, well, when were you saved? A good answer would be 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem I was saved. But there was a moment where I took hold of faith because God opened the eyes of my heart. He snatched me from the burning fire and I was established in a relationship with him. And I know I'm not the man or woman that I want to be or am going to be. But I know that one day that God will take this sinful body and make me into a new creation. And I will behold him face to face. And I will dwell in the new heaven and a new earth where my salvation is finally and fully realized. That's the idea of God 
of God keeping us. That's that's the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, But the only way that we're going to know about that is if we listen to what God has to say about it. Christianity is not a faith by osmosis. Uh, I think that the mainline denominations have showed us that. Just raising your kids in the church and hoping that a little bit of the church rubs off on a little bit of them, it's not enough. It's not enough. And I got a letter, um, y'all, um, I prayed last, I went on a prayer retreat last week where I pray for each and every single one of you, actually. Um, I work through the directory. It takes a while. Uh, but I also ask people to give a prayer request. And a young woman who's in college wrote me and, and she just said, you know, I just want to thank God for the Advent. She said, the Advent is the place where I was introduced to Jesus Christ, where I heard the gospel preached, and where God kindled in me a great desire to live in his word. That was the phrase she used. There's a woman of grace and knowledge. That's a whole lot better than saying, hey, I had a great time growing up at the Advent. That was really nice. I enjoyed it. Uh, but no, we're, you know, there's a whole purpose to what we're doing here. Uh, we're, we're the fire brigade, folks. Right? This, is, this is what we're about. And if we're going to go into the spiritual battle, as Ephesians tells us, uh, we need the sword of truth, which is God's word, and we need to be armed uh, with, with prayer. But helping people understand that when it comes to God's nature, His property is always to have mercy. That's the default position. And people need to be able to understand that before they can take their broken selves and flee to Jesus Christ. They need to understand that God is provoked to anger. It's not his default position, but has to be provoked to it. And and why he's provoked to it is because there are those who stand apart from his mercy and say, I can handle this on my own. Or I can find another way to do this. And that's where they're in jeopardy of burning up. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Questions, comments, concerns. And next week we'll get, or not next week because it's the annual meeting. I think, Gil, who's the sub in for me? Zach Hicks, okay. And then then the the next Sunday we'll, we'll finish up Jude with the doxology. Anybody have anything they'd like to share or... Add or ask? Andrew, yes, Jane. When you were talking about growing in um, grace and knowledge, I thought about something Tony Evans said. Hmm. He was talking about watching a football game. And you don't watch a football game in the kitchen while you're doing other things. You watch football in the den. Right. And he says, and you talk about it before the game. And you listen to the new game commentary. And then you sit down and watch the game. Your attention is focused. You replay things because you want to see that great play. Then after the game, you listen to the post-commentary and you, you, you continue to talk about it. And he said, that's how we should study the Bible. Mm. It is not something we just watch in the kitchen. Yeah. We actually invest ourselves into yeah. it. And that's been a good little analogy. Yeah, that... Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat back a little bit just for the tape uh, people. Um, but yes, there, there is a, um, that reading God's word is like watching a football game, going above and beyond and giving direct attention to it and not being distracted by other things. We don't watch football games in the kitchen. 
Um, I, I think that's very true, and it's also very insightful of Tony Evans in that it shows us uh, he's an SEC guy uh, because nobody, nobody from uh, the uh, Pac-10 would say that. Um, okay. Yeah, it is. People can identify with that because uh, football is a religious experience. I mean, it really is. For those of y'all that have uh, read any Max uh, Weber, uh, he he talks about he doesn't talk about football, but he does talk about sporting events as a good indicator of what a culture worships. In that everyone's gathered together for a common purpose. There's a common focus. In this case, it's a leather football. Uh, and uh, they rejoice at triumph, and they anguish uh, over over defeat, and it has a disproportional effect on your own emotions and your own own life. And uh, I don't think Max Faber ever traveled to Tuscaloosa, but he was close. And and you know I think to your point, Charles, the you know the folks who um, would be willing to fight over the greatest offensive line that Alabama's ever had, but won't fight over the truth of God's word. Um, and, uh, and also the willingness to, um, to jump up and down at a football game, but would be mortified to see that happen in church. Um, well, I'll tell you all this because we've got a couple more minutes, but... Um, there is a formula to church attendance when it comes to football games here at the Advent, which I figured out finally. If Auburn and Alabama are away, it still affects church attendance. Um, but if Auburn and Alabama are at home, it really affects church attendance, but we get a bounce back if one of them loses. True story. So a couple years ago, well, more than a couple now, remember the, the triple overtime 9-6 to six game where Alabama beat, uh, lost to LSU and then they played them again in the national championship? Um, church was packed, and that game went to some crazy hour in the morning. It was packed, and I've, I've been to funerals lighter than that. The, I mean, it was just heavy. I mean, you could clearly see who an Auburn fan was and who an Alabama fan was. And there's this guy who I consider a very godly man came out, of, came out the door after the 11 o'clock and I took him by the hand and I said, well, how are you? And he said, it's over. It's all over. And then he walked, walked off. And, uh, and, uh, and I actually used that. I, went, I saw him after they'd, Alabama beat LSU in the national championship. I said, see, that's what the disciples said. And yet there was a resurrection. Ye of little faith. Uh, but to your point, yeah, I mean, people, it, and it's, and again, look, original sin is evenly distributed. It, it, it crops itself up in all kinds of ways in people's lives. If it's not just because you're not that into football doesn't mean that you're immune from it. It's just, it looks different in your life than it does in, in others. Okay. Well, let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for the witness of Jude and, uh, Lord, that he shows us just how merciful you are and how you long uh, to save those who are uh, nearing uh, the burning fire. And, Lord, how you use all of us, those who are beloved by you, who are kept by you, who have experienced your mercy and find ourselves in Jesus Christ, how you use us 
uh, to bring uh, those other sheep uh, that have strayed back into the fold. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us courage, uh, a loving courage to speak the truth uh, to those who have strayed, uh, a loving strength uh, to rebuke those teachers who seek uh, to lead us into the fire. Uh, and away from the mercy of God. Uh, we pray that uh, we would uh, not so worry so much about the loss of this world, but only the loss of you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.